Hello and welcome to Carbon Removal Newsroom. I'm Ross Kenyon. I am the lead strategist at the Nori Carbon Removal Marketplace. Today I have with me two guests, uh, one alumna, Dr. Jane Zelikova, Chief Scientist at Carbon 180. Uh, hi, Jane. Hey, Russ. Thanks for inviting me back. Yeah, always good to have you on. Jane, you just organized an issue, Volume 10, Issue 5, of the Royal Society's Interface Focus uh, publication on the theme of going negative, an interdisciplinary holistic approach to carbon dioxide removal. And you also wrote a piece within it called the future of carbon dioxide removal must be transdisciplinary. So uh, yeah, that must be fun. The Royal Society as an American, that's just probably inherently impressive to you. Sounds fancy. It does sound fancy. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it took almost two years from the initial kind of idea to having the issue come out. So it's two years of work on behalf of, um, you know, the folks that contributed the other pieces in the issue and just thinking about what uh, an interdisciplinary scientific journal issue on CDR could look like and what topics should be represented. It's really fun. That's great. So we're going to work through this and Jane's going to explain uh, what she chose to cover in this issue and uh, what is going on there. And then we're also joined with an additional guest, uh, Dr. Trisha R. Shrum, behavioral and environmental economist at the University of Vermont. Hey, Trisha. Hello. Thanks so much for having me, Ross. It's my pleasure to have you. First time. Uh, mm -hmm. You co-wrote Behavioral Frameworks to Understand Public Perceptions of and Risk Response to Carbon Dioxide Removal. So we're going to go into that one in more detail. But I think perhaps a good place to start is, Jane, what were your motivations in uh, framing this issue in this kind of way? And how did you choose what went into it? And what actually is in it? Just yeah. Walk it through. Happy to. So um, I guess a little bit of like behind the issue, sort of like behind the music. Uh, the editor of this particular journal, Interface Focus, reached out interested in doing a special issue on CDR and really just wanted us, Carbon 180, as the carbon removal experts to think about what the cool emerging topics in carbon dioxide removal were and who the really interesting, compelling researchers in the space were and propose a series of papers that would go together into this thematically organized journal. So that probably happened two years ago and it took a while to come up with a potential list of, of people and then reach out to them and see if they would be interested in, in writing something contributing to the issue. So that's kind of how the process went along. And then just because like there's always attrition when people have to do work on top of work they're already doing, I think I reached out to something like 15 or 20 different researchers working across the CDR space really widely and ended up, you know, with a much smaller number, I think eight total papers or nine total papers that were submitted and went through peer review and were published. So there was some attrition um, and not every topic that I would have wanted to include ended up being included in the final issue. Um, the other considerations were, I think when we talk about carbon dioxide removal, we often focus on the techno, um, the, the technological capacity and maybe even the techno-economic potential, but we rarely talk about whether these CDR solutions should be deployed and how they should be deployed in real world situations with real people. So when I was thinking about organizing this, I really wanted to have a lot more contribution from folks working on the social science side 
to really frame the idea of CDR deployment very much from this perspective of should we, could we, and if we do, then how? Making sure that deployment is equitable, safe, and um, doesn't sort of perpetuate existing harms. Let's work through this outline. Tell me about the individual pieces and then let's conclude on Trish's and then we can really uh, sink our teeth into it. Yeah, so the, the pieces kind of range from straight kind of uh, here's why CDR research should include social sciences. So uh, a group of researchers from Cornell University um, and myself and Rory Jacobson, who used to work at, the, um, at Carbon 180 and is now a student at Yale, worked on this paper that essentially presented how social sciences should be integrated into CDR research and setting a bit of an example of um, how other disciplines have done something similar, integrating social and sort of physical sciences together and um, using some concrete examples and setting a bit of a research roadmap. So if we're gonna do this, here's where we can start. The, another paper in a similar vein is uh, Holly Buck wrote a paper called Should Carbon Removal Be Treated as Waste Management? Lessons from the Cultural History of Waste, where she kind of sets waste management as an analogy for carbon dioxide removal and just managing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere providing some historical examples of other waste systems and other ways, you know, culturally that we've thought about waste and how we've moved from um, different systems of waste management. And then she presents some opportunities to use the same framework, but also some really big cautions about some of the drawbacks that we should consider if we start thinking about CO2 as a waste. Um, then, another paper that looked at forest policy and management approaches to carbon dioxide removal. Folks from Colorado State University thought about forest-based uh, CDR, some of the kind of governance issues around forest and some of the forest policy um, considerations that we should take into account as we create policy tools to, ba to balance managing forests, both for climate and other policy priorities in part because we already do a lot of forest management and we have a lot of policy kind of on the books. The idea here is how can we integrate managing for carbon within existing policy structures and where do we need to create new ones? Um, then kind of shifting gears a little bit, there was a paper on climate change, climate change mitigation of potential in wetlands and the cost effectiveness of their restoration. Um, they really, the folks that wrote that paper kind of did a biogeochemical uh, and biogeoeconomical meta-analysis to figure out how coastal ecosystems could be restored and how they can do that at a cost-effective way. Hmm. Next, um, uh, Hannah Gosnell and Paige Stanley and Susan Charney wrote a paper called Climate Change Mitigation as a Co-Benefit of Regenerative Ranching, Insights from Australia and the United States. And they basically presented a framework for integrating social, biophysical, and policy disciplines together to address the scaling of regenerative agriculture more broadly with carbon sequestration as one potential co-benefit, but recognizing in their social science research that that is not the main um, motivator for farmers and ranchers who are implementing these practices. Jane, are you finding that 
the link between the physical sciences and social sciences is particularly weak within carbon dioxide removal, uh, or is this just endemic to uh, to many other fields too, or is just carbon removal so new that that link hasn't been made as of yet? In my experience, and I would love to hear what Trisha thinks. Uh, mm -hmm. In my experience, it's endemic. Um, as someone who is trained in sort of ecosystem science biology, I rarely had the opportunity to work with social scientists or understand what social scientists do. Um, even just the training, graduate training was pretty siloed in my graduate program. And I know there are interdisciplinary programs and there are more and more of them kind of every, you know, every year there are more programs that focus on providing interdisciplinary education. But I think it's still the exception, not the rule. So in my experience, it's, it's an endemic of the whole kind of academy that people work in silos, in disciplinary silos. So I don't think it's necessarily unique to CDR, but I think because CDR is a relatively new field of science um, and people are still kind of figuring out some fundamentals, they're doing so without working exclusively with social scientists to root their work in like direct applications or even in like some of the social science uh, disciplinary theory that I think has, it, it exists, like it's robust, the scholarship is robust and it just isn't being tapped into. Yeah, I would absolutely agree. There's a huge problem with lack of collaboration between social scientists and natural scientists. It's, we always talk about it being a problem, but there's so many just fundamental issues in academia for what is rewarded and what is not. And, you know, siloed work kind of gets um, more rewards um, than a lot of, you know, transdisciplinary and interdisciplinary rewards. You know, like my background, I, I had, to, I was trained as a, I was training myself as a um, ecologist, as an undergraduate was going to become, um, go into ecology and graduate school, but then shifted into social science. So my, my training is interdisciplinary just by, um, by gathering way too many degrees and spending way too much time in grad school. Um, but it's very rare to find the types of transdisciplinary um, departments that um, really promote this kind of work. Like, for example, when I was hired or when I found the job at, um, at my department, the um, community, depart um, community Development and Applied Economics Department at um, the University of Vermont, a, it was an interdisciplinary economics department, which I didn't even know existed. You know, I didn't even know that, I'd never even heard of an interdisciplinary economics department. And it's a department where we have all sorts of different types of mostly social scientists, but people who are working in all different aspects of social science. And we're always interfacing with people uh, from natural sciences. So, you know, our department at UVM is the exception rather than the rule. But I think that, as Jane said, you know, it's starting to become more common. It's commonly identified as a problem, as a blind spot in the way we conduct research. Uh, but hopefully we are moving towards a better, more integrated future of science. Yeah, I'm used to seeing uh, research, especially coming out of the academy on carbon removal, being focused on the how, well, I guess in terms of the physical processes, but not necessarily how does this impact people or interact with political economy. I mean, that's one of the reasons why uh, Holly Jean Buck comes on the show as often as she does for reversing climate change is because that research I find uh, very fascinating. I remember reading 
um, some of Jane Flagel's research too. Those questions are really, really interesting, but they certainly don't get as much of the attention relative to the, can we do this? Like, how do we, <laughs> how do we put it into uh, uh, reservoirs deep underground, et cetera? Yeah, that's what really piqued my interest with this work where, you know, Jane brought together a bunch of social scientists. Um, gosh, how long ago was that? Maybe probably close to two years ago, right? Yeah, the, I think so. At our first, the first that I attended, Carbon 180 um, workshop and got us all together thinking about carbon dioxide removal. Um, and many of us really didn't have much of a background in carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide removal. Um, with the exception of, of um, Holly Buck and, and a number of people who have um, had been working on this question for a while. Um, but the idea of coming in early and talking to, you know, engineers and scientists and policymakers while this issue is still fresh, um, while it doesn't have that much um, engagement or knowledge in the public, we can maybe get ahead of the game and understand how these things will Will play out in a social world um, and we might be able to avoid some mistakes that would otherwise handicap a lot of these efforts. Well maybe this is a good place to dive right into the the paper that you actually you co-authored it with Holly so um, that's neat. Yeah um, and I also have to give a huge shout out to our other co-authors Ezra Markowitz, Holly Buck, of course, uh, Robin Gregory, Sander Vanderlinden, Shazine Atari, and Lee Fenboven. Um, and they are just all, you know, very um, excellent, experienced um, behavioral scientists and social scientists uh, who came together to really think deeply about this problem. And um, we really enjoyed digging into it. What exactly uh, does this mean? I can imagine if you're not within this field, um, this might be a bit word salady for you. Maybe <laughs> break this down, give us, and especially me, I'm not even totally sure I, I understand the, the full repercussions of what you're trying to do. The idea is that, you know, right now, most people don't really know about carbon dioxide removal, or at least they don't have strong opinions about it. Like a recent paper in Nature Climate Change um, by Emily Cox, Elspeth Spence, and Nick Pigeon said that like, less than 10% of people in the country said they knew a great deal or a fair amount about carbon dioxide removal. So it's like it's a very small portion of the population that has even heard of this stuff. Um, and some of them are, you know, open to it. Some of them are concerned about some of the negative impacts. Uh, some are concerned about like the moral hazard that's going to distract from other efforts. But um, most people just haven't really made up their mind. So we're kind of at this point where we have an opportunity to stop and think about how do we present these ideas and how do we use what we know about how people think, how people make up their minds, how people evaluate risk, how emotion comes into play, um, those individual psychological processes that you know psychologists and behavioral economists and um, other folks have been you know, spending decades trying to understand. And then we also, can pay attention to these social processes that really come into play, especially when we get into these issues like climate change, which for better or for worse, mostly for worse, has been highly politicized. So between these individual psychological processes and these social processes, we have a lot of knowledge about how people generally respond to things. And we might be able to use that to try to improve the way we're presenting 
carbon dioxide removal technologies and understanding where people are not going to respond well and what kinds of reactions they might have that might shut down more rational um, discussions. And I said the word rational as if it was the right way to go, which I shouldn't because uh, we use both, you know, rational and emotional processing and, and that's fine and that's what makes us human. Um, but if we can understand how we think about things, then we can understand how to communicate things. So it seems like your work um, builds on but makes more complex some of the assumptions made in rational choice theory, which is you know, the foundation of microeconomics and, and much right. else. We should probably do a full proper episode on behavioral economics and behavioral science, but um, could you maybe give us an outline, a little spark notes for people who are, are new to this discipline entirely? Sure. So in economics, uh, rational choice theory, as you mentioned, is this idea that we all have, um, we all are able to take in information about a given decision, a given problem. And we take in all the benefits, we take in all the costs, we assign probabilities to all those different types of outcomes. And then we do a little calculation in our head and we end up with a decision that incorporates all that information in a rational way as one would do if they had just you know, created an equation that put probabilities on, out on outcomes. So it kind of says, you know, we call this um, homo economicus is the, is the term that we, we use um, very straightforward, rational processes to make decisions. But it turns out that humans are actually a lot more complicated than that. And we have a lot of different things that affect the way we choose, the way we make decisions, the way we process information. And those things are not, it's not like it's irrational. It's not like there's anything wrong with the way we um, are built. It's just that it leads to unexpected outcomes um, compared to this base case where you're expecting everyone to just you know, you give them a platter of information and then they, they process it like a computer. Um, that's just not how it works in, the, in um, people's real lives and in real political and social processes either. So behavioral economics kind of comes in and says, let's, let's look at, you know, psychologists have been studying people and their brains for a long time. Like, let's, let's take a look at like how they think people actually make decisions. Um, and they bring in a lot of the insights that psychologists have been developing for decades and apply them to economic models so we can better understand how people are actually behaving, um, how people actually respond to information, and what other factors that aren't included in rational choice theory have a big impact on people's beliefs and decisions. Um, so things like emotion, things like framing, things like you know where they get the information, who tells them what. Um, seeing what other people do. Um, so basically we're trying to um, give a richer look at um, human decision-making um, to better understand how to interact and how to communicate um, and how to design policy. Yeah, one of the most basic behavioral interventions that I think about is defaults. So for instance, is it opt-in or opt-out for being an organ donor when you get your driver's license? Right. That, that has a big impact, right? Right. Or like, you know, like, for example, when I got my last job, um, we had this extremely generous retirement fund uh, where they give us, you know, this really nice, nice perk. I failed to sign up for it for months and lost out on thousands of dollars because I procrastinate and I had a million things to do and just I was always going to do this thing later. Um, a rational choice 
theory would predict that there's no way I would just throw away money like that when it's like a five minute investment. So it, it, if you change the default, then you can really affect behavior and really affect um, welfare as well. Like I wasn't better off because I procrastinated on signing up for my retirement fund. It wasn't like a choice that I made and wanted to defend my freedom to make that choice. Um, it was a choice I just failed to make. So defaults is a really big one. Nudges um, can really help in a lot of different ways. Like, you know, even just like, do we put fruit or candy bars near the register? Like that can really affect people's calorie intake at a cafe. Um, we can look at, you know, how we talk about different issues and paying attention to the way we're framing uh, situations and risk. Like with the CDR, um, the issue of how natural these um, different technologies are viewed um, is a big um, is a big piece. You know, like we're, how we react to those things. We have an emotional reaction. So straight up, um, traditional economic theory wouldn't wouldn't um, wouldn't account for these things. Um, but there's a but we try to to kind of bring them in, and we try to walk through the whole article. Kind of reads as a behavioral science 101. Um, and social science 101 to some extent, and how it might apply to CDR. Hmm. Yeah, how might it? I'm trying to, to think, or at least, you know, pretend I haven't read this. Um, how might this apply to CDR? Because I can imagine someone struggling to, to make the leap between the examples we just gave and uh, where this fits in with carbon removal. Sure. So, so going back to the natural processes. So one, um, one paper found, uh, this is a corner and pigeon from climatic change. They found that if they framed carbon dioxide removal as, um, as an analogy of, of a natural process, like direct air capture works like artificial trees. Like that's a really nice way of explaining direct air capture. Cause it's sure it doesn't look anything like a tree, but the idea that we're sucking carbon dioxide out of the air and, um, whatnot is it's an analogy um, versus if you explain it as a chemical process involving large machinery like it probably doesn't come as a surprise that people would have more support for a policy that's described as it works like artificial trees compared to it works as a chemical process um, but when you're when you're talking about a technology especially if you're a natural scientist describing your work um, you tend to get you tend to focus on the details of what you do and like what's the nitty gritty of here's how these different chemical processes work and here's the inputs and here's the outputs and oh by the way the risk is really low but what comes across to people who often don't understand all of the ins and outs of of um you know jargony discussions they just think uh chemical process machinery like that sounds scary that sounds that sounds scary yeah yeah um so it brings up what we call dread risk um whereas if you can make it clearer and make it um use kind of what people already know um to explain a new technology uh it just reduces that dread risk reduces those um kind of the the emotional reaction that you would have to that type of technology. So, I mean, I was just looking up, you know, um, headlines on carbon dioxide removal. And, you know, one of them was, uh, you know, using rocks and farmlands to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Like that is a really nice description of enhanced weathering. 
Now, enhanced weathering, like, what does that mean? That doesn't sound like anything. I, I, yeah, I still know. don't know what that means. And I have read, <laughs> I read the, that paper. <laughs> yeah, enhanced weathering, like, that sounds kind of scary or sounds like weird or unfamiliar. But using rocks and farmland to remove carbon dioxide, that sounds fine. You know, that's not, that doesn't, that doesn't um, get up any of my like dread risk or my like concern about something not being natural. Um, so even though carbon dioxide removal is, you know, some of it is a natural process, some of it's just kind of leveraging a natural process and kind of amping it up. Um, if we can talk about it in ways and just think about how not only what we're saying and not only the facts and the information that we're trying to convey, but how that information is received. So just thinking it, thinking about how something is received in the other person's brain before you say it, um, or before you craft a policy around it, or before you um, try to increase public, public awareness on it, can really change uh, that initial first impression. And so with CDR, we have this opportunity to make a good first impression to a lot of the public. Um, so we have to be we should be thoughtful about it. Maybe the switch is that, you know, I used to have this view that we um, are presented with information and we evaluate that and integrate it and come to decisions. And then I've read stuff like Jonathan uh, Haidt's research and, and others um, that talk about, and also just like behavioral economics is somewhat based on this idea that humans do have a fundamental irrationality in how they make decisions and how many uh, biases and uh, fallacies they fall prey to. So is it how to persuade people given that information doesn't persuade people as you might initially think because of those uh, gaps in how our brain works? Is that kind of on the right track? Yeah, that's kind of on the right track. And I also don't want to say that, that you know, we're just, we're here to, you know, be the marketing service for CDR. Um, because in some cases, you know, the risks do need to be um, well understood and, and that we are not always sure exactly what the risks of some of these technologies are. So it's not that, you know, I just want to put that caveat in there. Um, but the idea that, you know, if you were trying to talk about, you know, direct air capture or some other type of technology, and you're trying to make people feel like it's, um, it's a safe technology. You might tell someone that, oh, there's a, you know, 0.001% chance that that um, the carbon dioxide that we that we capture is is going to, you know, escape in a large quantity or something like that. Um, and you might feel as a scientist that that's a really good way to make people feel like this is safe because that's such a small risk. Um, but the thing is, is that we often instead of using those probabilities like you think that a 0.001 or 0001 or however many whatever the probability is you think that that is going to provide them with like a reassurance whereas they're saying like wait so you're saying there's a chance like this is that sounds bad um and instead of like anything that moves away like people are really sensitive to deviations from certainty so if there's a 0% chance versus a 0.001% chance, um, that's actually perceived as a large difference. Um, and keeping that in mind is really important. So people kind of fall back onto what we call the affect heuristic. So instead of thinking about these probabilities and outcomes um, and weighing those in a rational way, we really think about, you know, we take in the information and then we really assess how we feel about it. 
Um, and this is, you know, you call it going with your gut. Um, this is actually a really useful thing that our brain gives us. People who don't have this ability will just spin endlessly um, and never make a decision. They're like, well, like, I don't know, white bread or wheat bread? I don't know. I just can't decide. Um, actually, like that emotional check on your decision making is how we stop the wheels from turning forever and leaving us with indecision. Um, but it also leaves you vulnerable if you don't have a lot of information to start with. Uh, or you don't have strong opinions to start with, it leaves you vulnerable to influence from people who might want to color a certain technology as either like scary or maybe it's like a cop out. Um, they can color that in ways that would elicit fear or disgust or like a negative association. Like for example, the only public relations things I've seen on carbon dioxide removal is from oil companies that are, are advertising, or maybe fossil fuel companies in general, advertising how they are going to create this green future. Um, well, like in some sense, it's great, like it's good for them for, you know, trying to, to reduce the, the carbon dioxide load in the atmosphere. Um, but if the first thing you hear, if the first messenger that you hear about, you know, carbon dioxide removal, if that first messenger is the fossil fuel companies, then then that level, any distrust that you might have on, from you know, any distrust you might have of fossil fuel companies, then kind of gets transferred onto this technology, and you think that they're just trying to greenwash or trying to like find a way to continue to emit, uh, trying to continue to um, to get oil and gas forever and ever. Which you know, it may or may not be true that that's the case, um, but you just have to be aware of of how that might influence people's um, risk, people's risk perceptions and perceptions of the technology moving forward. Because like right now we're at this point where people don't have these strong opinions, but once those opinions form, they're much more difficult to, um, to move and to, to convince them of, of, of an opposing viewpoint. Hmm. Okay, that makes sense. Thanks for clearing that up. We should also probably just have a more dedicated conversation on this topic because I love watching the fights over paternalism within behavioral science and economics. <laughs> and uh, I think those questions are really fascinating. So let's revisit that. We totally should in greater depth. Um, but Jane, maybe you could help take us home here. And uh, what happens now? Like, is this, um, are you expecting anything to, to come out of this? Is this a nice byline for your CV? What, what happens? Um, yes. Well, it is nice to add something to my CV. It's been feeling a little stagnant lately. So that's always a bonus. But I think the biggest thing is um, I know some of the authors of the papers that are in this issue have already reached out to me that they've had a lot of positive feedback. People are reading the papers and reaching out to them. So I think part of what we want always as authors of any peer-reviewed scientific work is that people read it um, and have opinions and reach out. So I think that's, that's already happening and I hope it continues to happen as more people read these uh, papers. The other thing I think is just to continue pushing towards a more transdisciplinary field of CDR where folks that are working on the specific technologies or a specific chemical reaction are inter not just interfacing with but talking consistently with social scientists to help frame the research that they're doing 
at the start. So we want those like integrations, the interdisciplinary part of it to be foundational to CDR research and not as an afterthought. Mm -hmm. And I hope that this issue maybe takes one small step towards getting there. Um, and so even though we didn't tackle every single CDR pathway and we didn't sort of like work on embedding social science into every solution that we discuss, I think this issue presents a bit of a blueprint of what transdisciplinary research agenda for CDR could look like and what deploying CDR in the real world could be informed by. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I would, also, I would also add to that, that there's just, there's more questions raised uh, than necessarily we have answers for, because we, you know, we can come up with, we can kind of pull out what we know from other, from other, you know, applications, but there's been really very little research so far. I think that this issue is a huge step forward. So I think Jane's doing excellent work on that. Um, but there just hasn't been a lot of research into how, um, how to frame carbon dioxide removal, how to um, inform people accurately about the um, opportunities and the risks of these, of these different technologies. So I think that there's a lot of work to do. Um, and we hope to be, you know, moving forward with that as well. Terrific. And if you'd like to read it for yourself, the link is in the show notes. It is in the Royal Society's Interface Focus publication, and it is called Going Negative, an Interdisciplinary Holistic Approach to Carbon Dioxide Removal. So, uh, Jane and Trisha, thanks for being here. Thanks so Thank much you. for having us. Yeah, it was great. And I'll put links to um, all of the things that you're involved with in the show notes if you'd like to follow up with either of them. And thank you so much for listening. Please write us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. That sort of thing helps quite a lot if you use those platforms. And uh, thanks again for being a fan and for checking this out and uh, share it out. So thank you.